since it was first detected on the last day of 2019, coronavirus has infected tens of thousands of people around the world and has killed more than 3,000. The outbreak has triggered unprecedented quarantines. The latest now on the coronavirus emergency, the quarantine on the Diamond Princess cruise ship is set to end for some passengers tomorrow. But just this morning, dozens more cases were confirmed on board. Stock market upheaval. A volatile session on Wall Street today. The markets were down, then they were up, then they were down again. So let's take a look. We're just heading into the close. And dangerous conspiracy theories. In a new report, Wired Magazine calls the coronavirus outbreak a petri dish for conspiracy theories. It says misinformation is, pardon the pun, going viral on Facebook and Twitter. Most cases are mild, but health officials say the virus's continued spread through the U.S. is inevitable. As the country and our healthcare system prepares, a lot is still unknown. President Trump has repeatedly sought to reassure the nation about coronavirus. He's organized a communications effort to downplay risk. He's appointed the vice president to run a task force and tried to boost an economy faltering in response to fears. He's also suggested closing the southern border, falsely said a vaccine could be available very soon, falsely suggested the virus could be gone by April, and disagreed with the World Health Organization's mortality rate of 3.4% globally. Well, I think the 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. And uh, but based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this and it's very mild. Trump's overall response to this public health crisis, a response which is shifting and changing as we learn more about the virus, it got us thinking. Does the president actually have that much power when it comes to controlling a viral outbreak? What exactly has Trump done? What else can he do if he chooses? And which of these things really makes a difference? It turns out this topic yields quite a few questions about presidential power, from quarantine powers to a president's influence on the economy. We couldn't settle on just one, so we're bringing you all of them. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Producer Carol and I headed on a tour around the newsroom, looking for expert reporters in each of these subject areas to get their insights. First, we found White House reporter Ashley Parker to answer some questions about what we've seen Trump do thus far to take steps to prepare the U.S. for a potentially larger outbreak. Last Wednesday, February 26th, a person in North Carolina tested positive for the virus, the first case in the United States that had no known link to foreign travel or contact with someone known to be infected. That news prompted Trump to put Vice President Pence in charge of the administration's response. President Trump named Vice President Pence to lead a task force aimed at containing the spread of the outbreak. We've seen other administration officials appoint coordinators, but is it unusual for that person to be the vice president? Yes and no. Oftentimes it's someone who comes in from outside of the administration, in part because they want someone who who can leave when it's over. And frankly, if things go awry, is not the number two, is not the vice president. Um, but the reason Trump chose Pence is because partially he trusts him. Vice President Pence is always incredibly loyal. He always seizes on opportunities to demonstrate his fealty. And so Trump thought that Pence, as a former governor, would not only be able to do this, but do this in a way that the president would like and follow direction from the president. But one thing that he's trying to do is sort of streamline the communication so that it is transparent and open, but also not 
alarmist. And so in some ways it feels like as much a political messaging campaign as a response to a public health crisis. That's coming from President Trump. And again, Vice President Pence is incredibly loyal. So if he understands that President Trump doesn't want people going out there and being overly alarmist, he's going to try to tamp down that sort of rhetoric. What else has Pence done so far with the task force? One thing they've done is they've implemented uh, daily press briefings in the White House briefing room. Uh, Good afternoon. We just finished uh, the Monday meeting of the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force. And part of that is just another way they say they want to sort of convey to the American people, here's what's going on, here's what you need to know. We ha- and they do them at the end of the day, so it was explained to me they can do a full day of task force meetings and sort of say, here are the decisions we made in the task force, here's where we are now, here's what you need to know. They're also booking a lot of surrogates on shows, not just kind of the traditional Fox News that the White House prefers, but on Good Morning America, the Today Show. They're trying to get someone on Dr. Oz, sort of the shows that worried parents might watch that can help reassure them. And he's also, he's brought in the task force and he's holding private meetings every day. Um, For instance, airline CEOs and nursing home CEOs to make sure they all understand the new nursing home guidelines and what needs to be done for air travel. And in terms of actually taking steps to contain the virus, has the task force done any of that? Yeah, I mean, the task force is made up of public health officials and experts. And so they are working on these challenges about how quickly can they get out a new vaccine, for instance. The initial CDC tests um, were faulty, and then they were also too narrow in scope. They were originally only testing people who had traveled to China or one of these areas with an outbreak. And so part of what they've been doing is working to expand the testing criteria and fix the broken CDC test. Has the president's approach to all of this evolved since the initial outbreak in China and to what we're seeing now? A little bit. When the president went, he went to India for about 36 hours. And when he left, he was mainly concerned with the falling markets with the coronavirus. And kind of by the time he landed back in the United States, he understood that this was the biggest news story. It wasn't just about falling markets, but that was one thing that was driving him. And he also understood that there was a lot of mixed messages coming out of his administration. And so starting then, that was when he made the decision to appoint Pence to start this task force. But since then, he has been also focused on this fairly regularly. As Ashley said, the Trump administration took action to respond to a falling global market. So we headed to the Post's break room cafeteria, where White House economic reporter Jeff Stein talked to us about a president's role when it comes to an outbreak's effects on the economy. Since the coronavirus has reached the U.S. and spread, there have been uh, wild gyrations in the stock market. Jeff explained what's happened to the global economy since the spread of coronavirus has grown. The stock markets have been up 800 points, down 800 points. We've seen um, major Wall Street banks dramatically cut their expectations for growth in the new year. And we've also seen early signs that the travel industry and other sectors that depend on people going out and spending money are going to be severely hit by the concerns that, that this raises. And some economists are cautioning that it's too soon to say what will happen next. But but certainly some people are starting to use uh, the word recession and fears that economic growth not just in the U.S., but worldwide, could come to a standstill. 
So then what steps can the president take to slow some of the economic consequences that we've seen thus far? The president's potential economic responses to the coronavirus are actually quite limited. He has the ability to work with Congress on passing legislation, and there's been quite a bit of talk already about a payroll tax or other measures designed through fiscal stimulus to get the economy moving again and to try to encourage people to spend money and go out and spend. He also has called repeatedly uh, for the Federal Reserve to cut rates. We saw that Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said that the Fed would cut rates by more than any amount since uh, the 2008 Great Recession, a sign um, of how seriously they're taking this. But really, unilaterally, Trump does not have that many options. And given how polarized Congress is and how skeptical Democrats are, are, are and have been of his handling of the situation, it really remains to be seen whether he could get the kind of fiscal stimulus that a lot of economic experts think are needed if, if this goes on for months or you know the whole year. Is it unusual for a president to pressure the Fed to cut interest rates? Certainly, the degree to which the president is publicly demeaning and castigating and attacking the Fed is unusual. Uh, it's not unprecedented for White Houses and, and administrations to comment on the Federal Reserve policy they would like to see. But Trump has really taken that to a whole new level, has really expanded the realm of what people thought would be appropriate and has earned a lot of criticism for that. On the other hand, it looks like to a great extent he's gotten exactly what he's asked for. The cut was in line with what the president was calling for, although in some ways, it didn't really work. And, and the markets had a negative reaction afterwards. It's not really clear if what happened was the Fed tried assuring people's fears by doing something very aggressive. But in doing so, they raised the prospect that they saw something that was very damaging and very scary in the economy. And that seemed to signal to investors that there was maybe something really worrisome here. Is there any other action you expect to see from Trump in the coming days or anything you're watching for in terms of his response to the economy? I think all eyes are going to be on whether he goes to Congress with a big stimulative ask with the spirals out of control. He would really need Congress's help to step in and figure out some sort of thing that's much broader than the eight billion dollar coronavirus supplemental, which is really targeted at bolstering the public health response. If there's a, a bigger concern about a recession and a need for much more stimulus, there's going to be a ton of speculation and a ton of attention to what the president will ask Congress for. And, and we'll have to see how that goes. I mean, I had the, the first scoop on this last week that they were considering introducing a payroll tax cut. And a lot of Democrats reacted to that by saying only Trump could take the coronavirus and respond to it by pushing a, a tax cut. To me, the immediate reaction there suggested that Democrats might not be willing to go along with that. And if that's the case, and we have a polarized Congress at a time where the markets are going all, all crazy and the economy is at risk of entering recession, things could get really bleak. And that could have very severe um, consequences for the lives of tens, if not hundreds of millions of people in this country. In response to the outbreak, the Trump administration has imposed travel restrictions to countries impacted by coronavirus, including China, Iran, Italy, and South Korea. The CDC has also cautioned against traveling to Japan. Over the weekend, Trump said that he was very strongly considering restrictions across the southern border as a way to limit transmission. The White House later backed off that suggestion. But we had to ask, can the president close entry and exit at the borders? Sure, the president has the authority to close the ports of entry and to place significant restrictions on commerce and travelers crossing back and forth. Nick Miroff reports on immigration enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security for The Post. 
I think one reason that we haven't seen that take off as a serious idea is that there are relatively few cases in Mexico and Latin America generally right now. And obviously closing the border would be an extraordinary measure that would disrupt trade with our third largest trading partner and hundreds of thousands of travelers' plans as they go back and forth. If Trump did want to exercise his authority on this, is there certain criteria that needs to be met in order for him to, in fact, go ahead and close the border, or can he sort of do it at will? You have to have a a national security emergency. In this case, it could be a public health emergency. My understanding is that there would be uh, a few additional legal steps he would have to take, but I think he could do those relatively quickly. One important clarification is that there are ports that allow cargo and commercial goods to flow and do not accept regular travelers. So it's possible we would see some kind of partial closure that would restrict the ability of of people and, and passenger vehicles to cross, but would allow commercial trucks to continue going. Would closing our borders actually help slow the spread of the coronavirus, or is this more of a political tactic? Well, I mean, I think that the China example shows that if you take very heavy-handed measures to restrict movement, the you know indication is that it can mitigate the spread of the virus. But I don't think that anybody here is seriously looking at that, nor would our government have the means to do that in a really draconian way. And I don't think it would be viewed as consistent with our values. As Nick mentioned, China has taken very drastic measures internally, locking down entire cities and therefore putting millions of people under quarantine. I wanted to know what kinds of power a president has to quarantine people or areas here in the U.S. For that, I turned to health reporter Lena Sun. Can a president decide that a given area must be quarantined? Quarantine is tricky. There is federal quarantine law, which in this case was used when the president declared that people coming back from China or when they announced the quarantine back at the end of January. That was the first time federal quarantine was used in more than 50 years. But that's only affecting the federal authority. Let's say because that's in place, when people step off the airplane and leave the airport and go into that county or that state, then quarantine authority delegates to those local jurisdictions, and they decide what the quarantine rules are supposed to be. I think people misunderstand that, you know, you snap a finger, quarantine for everybody. That's that's federal authority, and it is used very, very rarely, has been used very rarely until now. Now when you see flights come in and you say, see California counties or other states say these people are under quarantine, that comes under the state and local authority. And it's up to those local authorities to decide how they want to implement it. So far, we've seen a number of quarantines in the U.S. Hundreds of evacuees from China's Hubei province, where the disease originated, have undergone mandatory 14-day quarantines on military bases around the country. Others who were exposed to the virus aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship were placed on their own two-week quarantine. The government now also requires screening and self-quarantines for all other Americans who recently visited any other parts of China. Other specific groups of susceptible people have been quarantined around the country in areas like Kirkland, Washington, where there was an uptick in cases. Self-quarantine rules require individuals to stay in their homes for a certain length of time, monitor themselves for symptoms, and report them to local health officials. 
At a Monday roundtable meeting at the White House, Trump questioned pharmaceutical executives about how quickly they could get a coronavirus vaccine to market. We headed over to the desk of health policy reporter and author of our Health 202 newsletter, Paige Cunningham, to find out how much influence Trump can realistically wield with pharmaceutical companies. Okay, so what is Trump's pre-existing relationship like with pharmaceutical companies? Well, Trump, for a Republican, has been unusually critical of the pharmaceutical industry. He often tweets criticisms of them, and he's been really aggressive in promising that he's going to put pressure on them to bring down drug prices. He's worked on a number of policies towards that end, although there's been some delay recently and some backtracking in what the administration has proposed to do. But yeah, his normal tone toward the pharmaceutical companies is, you are, you're the big bad guys we need to put pressure on you. You need to bring drug prices down. This is unacceptable. And it has really surprised a lot of Republicans who've typically been seen as more friendly to the industry. Have we seen any of that change as the coronavirus outbreak has sort of taken over the the news cycle in the world? So Trump and other officials have really realized that they need the pharmaceutical industry to develop a vaccine. I mean, the National Institutes of Health is working towards that end, working with bio companies, but to really be able to manufacture a vaccine and make it widely available, they need the big pharmaceutical companies. And so you saw the president meet with some of the top executives of vaccine developers on Monday in the White House. And it was definitely a more congenial tone. And I think, you know, again, he's being sort of pragmatic about it, realizing that if we're ever going to get a vaccine, um, it's going to have to involve these big developers. And there are plenty of reasons that these companies would not want to get involved in vaccine development. It is certainly not as lucrative as a lot of other things they could be doing. Typically, the amount of time it takes to develop a vaccine, by the time it's ready, the threat or the epidemic is often subsided or passed, and that's likely to be the case here as well. And so the companies really need a lot of incentive to actually get into the development of the vaccine. So then given all of those factors, how long it takes to develop a vaccine, how perhaps it's not all that lucrative for some pharmaceutical companies, how much power does a president have to influence these companies to make a vaccine or to move more quickly? Does he have much power there at all? There are definitely things the government can do. If you look back at the swine flu outbreak in the 1970s, there were a lot of tensions there that the pharmaceutical companies were feeling. They were very concerned about liability, about what might happen if you come out with a vaccine and you have some injuries from that or some deaths from that. And then, of course, they were concerned about making some profits off of the vaccine. And so the government had to kind of hold the hands of the companies in a lot of ways and eventually assumed responsibility for any damages from that vaccine. So I think there are some similar levers that the government could try to pull now over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months while a vaccine is being developed. The government needs to assure the companies that it's going to be ultimately in their interest, because that's how they operate, to develop a vaccine and distribute it widely to people. And have we seen Trump taking any of those actions to reassure some of those pharmaceutical companies? I think based on a lot of Trump's comments and questions at this meeting on Monday, he still seems to be trying to develop a basic understanding of vaccine development. You saw other health officials and the CEOs of these companies talking about the amount of time that is required to identify a potential vaccine, to test it, do animal testing, do clinical trials. Uh, I mean, if a vaccine was available a year from now, that would be like a record-breaking amount of time. And yet you saw Trump kind of over and over again making these assertions that 
oh, a vaccine is going to be ready in a couple of months or asking these CEOs, what do you think? Four months, you know, three months, four months. And so uh, just based on his public comments, he hasn't seemed to show an awareness of sort of the nuances and, and what might be required in maintaining this relationship with these pharmaceutical companies to make sure that those levers are pulled to get a vaccine more quickly. Despite that reality, Trump has falsely suggested that a vaccine is possible much sooner. And it's not the only piece of false information that Trump has spread about the virus. The Post's resident fact-checker, Glenn Kessler, along with his team, have cataloged more than 16,000 false or misleading claims Trump has made since he took office. That includes many over the past few weeks about the spread of coronavirus. I started by asking Glenn what else, besides a vaccine timeline, has Trump made misleading statements about in regards to this outbreak? He has also tried to minimize the number of cases and deaths, actually. When he had his news conference, he said there were only 15 in the United States and they would all be better soon. And that was disputed by some of the officials that were standing near him. And then, of course, we now know that it's, it's, it's spread pretty widely. What specifically has he said in regards to the coronavirus potentially being a hoax? Well, at a campaign rally, he described it as the new hoax. He has described the Russia investigation as a hoax and, and uh, impeachment over Ukraine as a hoax. A day later, he explained that what he was saying it was that the new hoax was attacks on the administration's response to the coronavirus. Some Democrats have kind of twisted his words to say he was saying the virus was a hoax, but maybe he suggested that at the campaign rally, but he has now clarified that that's not what he was saying. Has he clarified any other points regarding to some of his earlier statements about the coronavirus? Uh, One thing he had suggested was that uh, the coronavirus would go away in April, apparently thinking it was somewhat like the seasonal flu. But the coronavirus uh, is spreading in Singapore, where it's summertime type temperatures there. So, and he has not pulled back and said, oh, I was wrong about that. Apparently, his aides have convinced him that, no, you can't keep saying a vaccine will be available in two months. But we'll have to see whether or not he actually says that again. How does the existing distrust and information coming out of the White House affect their response to the virus and the public's willingness to trust information that they hear? Well, we'll have to see how that how that turns out. But certainly the administration over the past three years has hurt its credibility and has indicated an inability to tell the truth about the simplest things. A great example is covering up the fact that the president got his prediction of a hurricane hitting Alabama wrong. And the government officials who corrected him were berated. And there seems to be, in this case, a real effort at not allowing the the actual experts to speak forthrightly about whether or not this is a pandemic. And that is going to cause distrust and concern at a point when the White House really needs people to believe what they say. With the virus, that can be very dangerous because there's actual scientific facts on the ground. The The president generally historically has a lot of power in his rhetoric and making people believe what he wants them to believe. After we made our way around the newsroom, I went back to White House reporter Ashley Parker one more time to understand how Trump's leadership in this moment reflects his approach to crises overall. How does the president's response to this situation compare to how he's handled other national crises or emergencies? Are we seeing a similar level of engagement from the president on this? 
Yes and no. The president in the White House spends a lot of time responding to crises of the president's own making. They're sort of used to that. This is a crisis, at least at the beginning, entirely outside of his control, right? It is a virus, a possible global pandemic that originated in Wuhan province of China. So that is different. Um, But in some ways, his handling it is quite similar. He's watching it very closely. He's following all the commentary on cable news. He's paying attention to the markets, which is one thing he always cares about because he thinks they're a barometer for his reelection chances. He's tweeting about it. He's saying some things that a lot of experts think are fairly irresponsible. That's also kind of historically what he has done. And he's saying some things that they think are, are quite responsible and calming. So it's kind of typical Trump behavior on a slightly atypical crisis. All right, I turned to one more White House reporter, Anne Guerin, because I still had one final question. How much can the president protect himself from coronavirus? Trump's notoriously germ-averse. Has this complicated things for him as this outbreak has grown across the world? I don't know if it's complicated it, but it's definitely affected the way he talks about it and has reacted to it. I mean, you can tell that the person talking about this public health crisis is himself intensely interested in public health and public health crises and his own health. This is exactly the kind of thing that, for a variety of reasons, I think makes his skin crawl. Certainly, the president has the best health care available to any person on the planet. He does have people around him who help him with his his Purell habit, which is heavy, and definitely make sure that you know he has any kind of, of health aid available anytime he wants it. Do you expect the president to take any additional actions over the coming days in order to protect himself or his staff in any way? I don't think we have reporting that he is intending to do anything uh, particular to to uh, different to protect himself and his staff. Uh, he is apparently going about his his regular schedule. Uh, he's holding rallies, large public gatherings in the open air, or in in some cases in close confines. And he's going to go to Tennessee to to view the damage from from the tornado. Those are normal presidenty things to do, where he's out in the public, presumably shaking hands, presumably getting close to people. Want to keep up with news about coronavirus? The Post has a new pop-up newsletter to keep you updated. The newsletter features vital reporting, FAQs, and updating maps showing affected areas. And any article featured in the newsletter is completely free to access, as long as you click from the email. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. That's WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the tireless Carol Alderman and the energetic Ariel Plotnik, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lorette Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.